We are beginning a new series um, in the book of Acts. Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke, so it makes sense. We were in Luke for a number of months from January to April, uh, and now we are looking at Luke's second work, which is the book of Acts that follows the story of the disciples uh, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Uh, We're calling this series Uncharted. Uh, reorienting to the God who subverts and surprises. So like we did with Luke, we're we're pursuing a theme in this book as well. And the theme that we're pursuing is uh, we're pulling out all the stories where God either subverts the expectations and assumptions of his people or where he surprises them by introducing a new reality that they could not see before. So these are times when God's people, when they're frames for perceiving reality, got in the way of them seeing what God was doing. And God is changing out their frames so that they could see anew. And the reason that we're doing this is because um, Acts is descriptive of the way that God continues to be at work today. It's not necessarily a prescription that He always has to work this way, but it's a description of His subversive, surprising presence. This is the way God is at work. So if we too, like the disciples and like the, the first uh, followers of Jesus, want to be the kinds of people that learn how to pay attention to God's work, how to meet God in reality rather than in our assumptions or expectations, then Acts is a great place to do that work. So, let's begin at the beginning, shall we? Acts 1, verse 1 through verse 11. It'll be on the screen behind me. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all, the, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave thanks He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is an event that the church calls the ascension of Jesus. So let's proclaim some good news, right? I need some good news. Do you? 
This is the good news that we proclaim today. That Jesus is Lord right now over the whole cosmos. And He rules by sharing His power with us. His body, the church, He authorizes us to bear witness to His Lordship in every place where it has not yet been manifested. And so friends, today, this Jesus who is present here and now, He meets us in our misconceptions so that He might teach us how to trust Him with how He really is present and at work. Receive His teaching today and trust Him. Uh, This week I was listening to uh, the story of some friends, uh, a friend named Julie and her husband, Jeremy. Jeremy is a contractor, a self-employed business owner, and some years ago he uh, got a contract for a large um, construction job. And part of his contract was that he received a large upfront payment so that he could pay his crew and purchase supplies. Uh, But Jeremy wasn't very wise in how he spent the money that he received. Some unexpected expenses popped up along the way, and lo and behold, he ran out of money for the job. And they had to go into an enormous amount of debt for a very long time in order to dig out from this mistake. Julie, his wife, felt incredibly angry at her husband because he had not listened to her, had brushed off her concerns, and every time she spoke up, he um, made her feel guilty that she was condescending to him. So she spent the the next few years, um, this is a a few years ago, sort of looking over his shoulder when it came to money decisions from that point on, making sure that he spent money more wisely, and this made Jeremy feel resentful. He would say things like, I feel like you're treating me like a child, and they would blow up in these big arguments. Julie realized that she didn't want this kind of contentious relationship. This is not the marriage that she signed up for, and so she stopped talking about it. She buried her concerns. She said to herself, I'm just going to support and pray and hope that things get better. And they did get better in her marriage, but internally she bore the cost. She had this worry that wouldn't go away. And she felt stuck. Stuck between these two options. Do I try to fix the problem and control the outcomes? Do I speak up and speak my mind and when I do so damage my marriage? Or do I stay quiet and maintain the peace but allow the inside anxiety to eat away at me? What do I do? Can you relate to feeling like you're between a rock and a hard place? Um, These things happen all the time. Um... I share this story because it's, uh, it doesn't seem like an enormous thing. It's like an everyday kind of occurrence. And we have these same arguments, don't we? Same arguments with our spouse or with our siblings or with our friends. That they seem to happen like clockwork. We're triggered by the same things over and over again. Or we struggle with the same failures and sins and we can't get free from those things and we wonder what's going on. Maybe our kids aren't on the same page with us spiritually. 
and we struggle with what to do about it and how to talk with them about it. Maybe our friends at school aren't very good friends, but it's better than being alone. Do you ever feel like you're between a rock and a hard place? Neither option is a good option, and you tried both, and they don't seem to bring about the kind of flourishing that God promises when he says, behold, the kingdom is here. Maybe you've had these kind of experiences and it's led you to just retreat into prayer. God changed this situation. Why aren't you acting? I mean, we talked about one of these things just now. Why don't you give me better friends? Why can't we go over this argument that we keep having? Why can't I seem to talk to my kids about you? Why is Haiti such a stinking mess? We wonder, where is God in all of this? Why is this happening? And it's easy to come up with a a picture in our minds, an expectation, an assumption, where we look at all these things that don't, where the ends don't seem to meet, and we say, if God was present and at work, if Jesus is Lord, then this is what it would look like. And you fill in the blank, right? If Jesus is Lord, and God is present and at work, this is what it would look like. I got some pretty strong thises. I don't know about you. And a few of these. And a little of those. Friends, we're not alone. These same frustrations, disappointments, questions, doubts, they're present in the disciples too. They're present here in the story that we read. As they watch their friend... Their Savior, the, most, the one who walked into death and through it, taken away, out of their sight. The resurrection happens. Jesus has been, Luke tells us, with them for 40 days. I mean, if you're going to spend 40 days, this is how you want to spend it, Right? Eating, drinking, laughing, discussing the kingdom of God with Jesus. This sounds like heaven on earth. Who wouldn't want this, right? Who wouldn't want it? And I love that um, Luke like drops this little nugget in there. He tells Theophilus, who's the patron of the book, that Jesus has been instructing them, quote, through the Holy Spirit. I have no idea what that means. Not a clue. But in my, here's what I'm picturing in my mind. It sounds wonderful. Is that Jesus is like, he's got this resurrection body, right? And he seems to appear before his disciples, like, like Thomas, right? They're talking about him, and boom, peace be with you. And they're like, what? And he's here. He's just there, right? And then he has this interaction with them, and then he goes away. And they discuss, and they pray, and they hear from Jesus, even though he's not physically present with them. I'm imagining that Jesus is like passing back and forth between heaven and earth. That he would appear to them and speak to them in person and give them words of comfort. And then he would go into heaven and he would speak to them through the Holy Spirit. And he's doing all of this to get them ready for the surprise of their life, which is him being present in a different way now. 
They're learning in real time how to follow Jesus without Jesus being physically present. This is Jesus' grace to them. That's what I'm picturing anyway. I don't know if that's reality, but I, it, it makes me smile. But now he comes to them this one final time in bodily form, and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. And their question, their one and only question, is both revealing and tragic. They ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what in the world are they talking about? Jesus' disciples, they have this picture, this expectation in their mind about where this life with God is leading. That even after the resurrection, they're, they're wondering, after 40 days of talking about the kingdom of God, is now the time when Israel will be restored? Is this the day when the Romans are going to get kicked out? When we get to rule and have our way for a change. See, they've been a, an occupied people for generations at this point. They return from exile in Babylon. They come back. They reestablish the nation. But over and over again, first the Greeks, then the Romans, they are a conquered people. They don't get this, how, the, their own say in how they govern themselves and how they worship. They're at the beck and call of every authority and power that happens to cross their paths. They're the weakest among the nations. They have nothing going for them. Is this the time, Jesus, now that you're raised from the dead and you are the only king who can no longer be killed? Is this the time when we get to have things our way for a change? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? It's a reasonable question. But at the center of this question is this assumption. If Jesus is Lord and God is present at work, then fill in the blank. Israel would be flourishing again. Foreign powers would be no more. The poor would be lifted up those that have had to suffer injustice would finally, finally have the dignity of being humanized. Is this the day? Now, where did the, where did the disciples get this idea from? Here's the intriguing part. Where did they get this idea from? That God would restore Israel to its former glory. Huh? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Friends, they got it from reading their Bibles. This is an expectation rooted in Scripture and their reading of it. They're not being unfaithful to God by asking this question. They're reading their Bibles really, really well. And they're going, look, Jesus. It says it right here. You want to hear one of those places? Isaiah 54. Afflicted city, this is Jerusalem, lashed by storms and not comforted. I, the Lord, will rebuild you with stones of turquoise. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. Is this the day, Jesus, 
when the Romans surrender to us? They're being Bible scholars. Jerusalem restored to its former glory. Pagans surrendering and getting the heck out. Dominance, sovereignty. This is their expectation. So they ask Jesus, we know this is going to happen someday. Isaiah told us so. Is this the time when you power up? You're the only king who can't die. What are you waiting for? And Jesus' reply is shocking because it subverts the assumptions of these faithful men. Not just the 11 disciples of Acts 1, but prophets like Isaiah. Isaiah had no clue that Jesus was about to say what he's about to stink and say. Side note, let me get on a soapbox here for a second. Because this is a side note, but it's an important one. We have this very strange duality when it comes to God subverting our assumptions. Because of the modern way that we've ended up interpreting and reading our Bibles, we are perfectly fine with God, uh, with God's people having misplaced assumptions when they speak about God out loud. When they say stupid things like, "Are you going to return Israel to its glory?" Boat friends, we lose our biscuits at the thought that a prophet like Isaiah may have held misplaced assumptions and wrote them down in chapter 54 of the Bible. We lose our minds. Isaiah could not conceive of God being present and at work in a way that did not include Jerusalem at the very center. And sure, we get a picture in Revelation. We just read it. Someday this will happen. But we have no idea how that's going to look either. I'm assuming that our assumptions are going to be uprooted and replaced by some kind of new reality that's better than what we can perceive of today. Right? He is higher than our ways. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Let's get used to that, right? Let's get used to it. Isaiah couldn't conceive of a way. The the only way for God's people to flourish is for God's city to flourish. Now, here's the thing. Did God um, hear this assumption of Isaiah and go, you idiot. Don't you get it? It's not going to involve Jerusalem only. It's not going to involve restoring Israel to its former glory and making it great again. Like, you know what I mean? It, God doesn't... Um, he, 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 isn't, um, he doesn't talk down as though it, Isaiah's mind is too small and he should get it. No, God meets him in his assumptions. And friends, it's the same with us. God is present to us even in our assumptions. This is one of the, um, the unsung ways that the, the Bible um, points to the love and the grace and the sovereignty of God. God always begins His work with us, in us, from the assumptions that we carry from the worldviews that we hold to. 
And He does this because He loves us and because He stoops down to our level. He works from within our framework so that He can introduce to us new frames that lead to better ways of seeing Him and seeing reality. He's doing that work right now. In chapter 1 of of Acts with the 11, He was doing it with Isaiah. Because that's what God always does with His humans. With His beloved ones. And so Jesus says to them, in the shock of all shocks, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power. Israel's not going to receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem. Judea. And oh, by the way, Samaria. You remember those guys? You were all disgusted by when I'm having a conversation with a lady by a well and I sent her back as the first evangelist to her community and all these people came out to greet me because I was full of grace and truth and they'd never experienced a Jewish leader like this before. You remember those guys? I'm sending you back there. And to the ends of the earth. Jesus is telling him, you assume that you know what this is all going to look like and your big question is when. But when is the wrong question? Because you're looking for the wrong what. When isn't the right question because you don't have the right what. God's kingdom is not coming in the preconceived packages that you have in your mind. Even if those packages are informed by Scripture, friends. I'm doing a new thing. Does anybody like find that disquieting that God would do that? It shakes up our notions. But if God is present and at work and Jesus is Lord, then He reserves the right to do so. If we've settled for anything than grace and love and truth from God, then and our, our frameworks reinforce our worldview, God will shake up those frames so that He can say a new thing. And so it's, it's like Jesus saying, if you continue to look for the ways that I'm going to to work in those ways, you're going to miss when it does come. And it is coming. Yes, I love Israel, but I'm not bringing it back to its national sovereignty. Instead, I'm sending you out as authorized representatives of Israel's king to proclaim my lordship throughout the world. This is how the kingdom will come. This is how it will come. Now, a couple big shifts here, right? One, the kingdom isn't going to come as we expect. So God subverts that and get ready to be surprised because it's a new thing. And two, one of those surprises is that you and I are now part of its coming. That we receive a different kind of power. Not the power of domination, but the power of witness. That we're involved, not just watching from the sidelines and cheering Jesus on as He takes over the pagans and kicks them out, but this is something He invites us to, that He plans to share His power with us. 
And friends, this, we talked about this with, the, with Revelation and lamb power, right? This is not the power to tell others what to do. It's not na- national power. Jesus says, my power is not the power to control or dominate your enemies or to establish a powerful nation. I'm not into that kind of kingdom building. And you shouldn't be either. See, but this kind of power, like power like nationalism, Israel or otherwise, it's seductive. It seduces us. It, 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 it lays down promises that sound really, really enticing, especially for those who are weak and have been wounded. It says to us, come to me and I will make you strong. Come to me and I will keep you safe. Come to me and I will protect your children from them, them. Come to me and I will turn you from conquered into conquerors. Friends, the song of nationalism is especially seductive to those who feel like they're losing power. Anytime we feel like we're losing control, losing power, losing autonomy, losing influence, losing being at the center of something, watch out. Be on alert. Because there are are powers and principalities that will come to you in that moment of losing power and say to you, it doesn't have to be this way. You can get back to the center. You can be in charge again. But that's not the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus comes to us saying things like, I give my power freely to anyone who asks but my power is cruciform power. It is cross-shaped. It invites you not to gain power, but to lose your life. It's the power to bear witness, not in strength, but in weakness and vulnerability among the nations that are more powerful than you. The power I give is the power to lay down your life. Because anyone who does knows that they're headed for resurrection just as I was. You don't have to fear what you'll lose. Friends, the cross is a different kind of power that transforms in surprising ways without controlling the outcomes. It is a love that does not manipulate or coerce. See, Jesus, in this moment, in Acts 1, is protecting His friends from receiving the kind of power that will destroy them and alienate the people from every nation that he loves and plans to save. Jesus is not in the business of raising up Israelites any longer. He's in the business of raising up witnesses from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You can't do that work if you're busy building walls. You can't do that work. Jesus is saying to them, you can't be nationalists and witnesses. You can't be representatives of empire and God's kingdom. You cannot be consumed with control and consent to God's love at the same time. They're imposed to each other. And so the invitation is then, let go of these ideas of how God must be at work and instead open your hands to receive the power for how He is at work. 
God's activity is always surprising. And so we proclaim the good news today that Jesus is Lord right now over the whole cosmos. He rules by sharing his power with us, his body, the church. He authorizes us to bear witness to his lordship in every place where it has not yet been manifested. Friends, this Jesus, this risen Lord, meets us in our misconceptions to teach us how to trust him and to see that he really is present and at work. Paul talks about this reality in Ephesians 1. He's praying for uh, his dear friends in the church. And and think about what you would wish on a friend. You know? Someone that you love about and you care about. Think about the things that you would wish for them, that they would understand, that they would see. Paul says this, I keep asking God, uh, our Father, uh, that the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but in the age in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I mean, there's so much there, like so much. But the gist of it, I think, is, is Paul saying, My wish for you, my friends, is that you could see your true situation. That even in the midst of things that are not going the way that you expected or the way that you hoped, that you would see that in spite of it all, you are seated, you are secure, you are safe in the heavenly realms in Jesus. And that seated there, there is hope and that you would know the power of God Now, what is that power? It it is the power of being in union with Him. Paul's saying you're connected to Jesus in every moment of your life because He fills everything in every way. There's no place that you go. There's no relationship that you tread into. there's um, There's no job or circumstance that you go to. There's no conflict that you enter into where God is not already present and at work. And you are a part of Him and He is a part of you. Oh, that you would see what is really true of you. That even when things go wrong, in your life or in the world, when we're wondering what is going on and where in the world is God, that we would perceive that there is a truer reality. Now, it just so happens that we are studying Acts 1 the same week that the church celebrates something called the Ascension. I mentioned that before. The Ascension of Jesus. It's like the the unsung hero of the Christian calendar. Like, we celebrate Christmas and Easter. Um, We incorporate Advent. trying to think of other ones. That's about it. (laughs) That's about it. Um... But one that comes along on the calendar every year is the ascension of Jesus. It it looks at this very moment when Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father. And it's good for us to pause and remember it every once in a while. 
that when Jesus, the human one, ascends, He he doesn't just go away from us. He takes our suffering and pain into the presence of God. Jesus is the one who endured all temptation. Everything that we've suffered has been suffered by Him too. So He takes it into the presence of God. And then from that place, He, he pours out hope and power to bear witness to this reality to others. See, if we see it, then our, our eyes are enlightened and we can see what's most true of us, that we are connected with God in a very real way. That we, and because of that, we can see everything through the Lordship of Jesus because everything is connected to Him. Because He fills all in all. Now, once we can see this, if we can see it, then we can take these situations, these things that we grapple with that frustrate us and don't make sense to us, and we can unclench our fists and stop trying to make things different. We can take a few deep breaths. And we can take our preconceived notions about what God should be doing, and we can receive the power to consent to what He is doing. And as we proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that God is present and at work, this amazing thing happens. This amazing thing. The kingdom begins to make its presence known. Manifest. Now why is that? It's not, it's not because it wasn't there prior to us proclaiming, but that Jesus has given us authority to name that as reality. And as we name Reality, we begin to live in the reality that we've proclaimed. This isn't some power of positive thinking. This isn't a name it and claim it spirituality. This is the good news that Jesus is Lord right now over the whole cosmos. That He rules by sharing His power with us, His body, the church, authorizing us to bear witness to His Lordship in any place that it hasn't been manifested yet. Friends, this Jesus, He meets us in our misconceptions so that He might teach us how to trust Him with how He really is present and at work. So receive His teaching today and take a step of trust. Jesus is not in some far-off place. This is the reality that the disciples are at this moment getting used to. Remember I... You know, imagine that Jesus is passing back and forth between heaven and earth. The reality is that just because he is bodily residing in heaven does not mean he's tucked away in some far off place. He's not, he's not God's secretary of the afterlife. He didn't leave this life up to us. No, he's Lord right now of heaven and earth. And so we, as we proclaim that reality, as we take our very real lives into it and open our hands to it and look at things anew with it, then things begin to shake out that we couldn't see before. Um, I mentioned a minute ago um, a friend named Julie and her husband Jeremy. Um, one of the things that occurred in the midst of Julie's stuckness is 
this battle between angrily trying to control the situation and quietly feeling worried about it. And um, she had a moment of revelation and found her way into proclaiming the lordship of Christ over her marriage. And this is, she said this, she said, I simply, instead of controlling and, and withdrawing as these two polar options, um, I, I simply decided to name my anxieties and fears with my husband. Instead of withdrawing from him or accusing him, I, I came to him with what I was feeling, with my reality. And I said, I, I don't want to be where we were, but I don't know what to do. Will you meet me in this? And a miracle happened. Jesus became Lord over this issue. And the way she did this was by rejecting the temptation to hide or control, and she simply confessed where she was. She moved towards someone in vulnerability and weakness, and God met her there, and thankfully so did her husband. This is the way of the kingdom. We learn how to do this in every sphere of life. Um, I'm... I've been learning over time how to do this in my leadership, to operate in the power of Jesus rather than in the power of leadership culture. And so instead of um, wishing that we were somewhere that we weren't, instead of trying to um, manage and manipulate perception that we're somewhere that we're not, I get to simply confess and open up space for weakness and vulnerability and doubt. We didn't come to you this morning with, a, with our great 12-step plan for Haiti in 2023. You notice that? We came to you with reality and we said, this doesn't make sense to us. We're going to pray. We're going to discern together. And we don't know what to do next. This can be hard for leaders because we have a vested interest in success. This is thanks to church culture and leadership culture that says that we need to be the experts in the room and answer everybody's questions. Now, I got questions myself. And I think if we can be vulnerable and honest with them, if we can bear them with one another, then Jesus does this amazing, surprising thing and he makes himself known in our midst. This is what it looks like to trust that God is present and at work and that Jesus is Lord. So let's respond together. I want to give you an opportunity, an invitation to submit a circumstance, a situation, a relationship where you may be tempted to believe that nothing good is happening there. Maybe you've tried the hide and control options and they're just not working anymore. Maybe it feels like God is absent today I invite you to proclaim Jesus' lordship in that space, in that area. Okay? So we're going to pray, and I'll give you a chance to pray, and then we'll respond and share. Father, we thank you that you are present and at work even now. So much of our disillusionment, our discouragement, our doubt, is due to the fact that we have pretty strong conceptions 
of what we want to see in our reality. Pretty influential ways of how we assume that you would be present and at work if you really were. And so God, we take our clenched fists and we open them to you. Today, God, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord over, go ahead and fill in the blank. What is that for you?